Well, praise the Lord. That was great. I appreciate it, ladies, and thank you for singing about so great a salvation that we have. And I'm thrilled to be in church again tonight, and so thankful that you are here as well. And I hope that you had a good and productive day today. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to John 17, please. John 17. And we're going to, Lord willing, look at uh, this, uh, some passages from this chapter, the remainder of our time together. And I feel like things have gone fast already. And had a fast day yesterday, and this day rapidly approached the meeting. And uh, really, this is the past the halfway point after tonight. And so uh, I'm looking forward to being with you tonight and the next couple of nights in this passage. This is a great pinnacle of the Word of God. This is a great chapter in the Bible. Now, you've probably heard of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you've heard that before, the Lord's Prayer. And usually when we say the Lord's Prayer, most people think, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. You know that, uh, reciting that, and we call that the Lord's Prayer. But we know that technically, if you want to be nitpicky, if you want to be one of those Bible people that, you know, technically, that's not, that's not the Lord's Prayer. And, and the big reason is, is it was a model prayer. But remember he said, forgive us our trespasses as... Uh, you know, we forgive those that trespass against us. And of course, the Lord never had any sins to confess. He was the perfect Son of God. And so it really wasn't His prayer if you're being technical. But if you want to know what the Lord's prayer really was, it's this chapter. Here, and I, this is just an amazing passage to me, it's as if God lets us listen to Jesus pray. Now, could you imagine? I mean, really, when the model prayer was given, that's what the disciples did, right? They were like, well, we, you know, John taught his disciples to pray, and Jesus, we've heard you pray, and the way you pray is not the way we pray. And uh, you're, you're just on another level. Please teach us to pray. And I've often thought about that. Could you imagine hearing Jesus pray? I mean, it, I've grown up in church all my life. I've heard guys pray, you know, and when the pastor asked so-and-so to pray, you're just like, when I was a little kid, it's like, oh, no, man. This guy's going to, uh, one time this guy, he would pray forever in our church. And I remember literally he said, and Lord, I could go on and on. And I said, yeah, you are. And my dad elbowed me, you know. And, uh, so, but could you imagine hearing Jesus pray? That'd be unbelievable. The Bible talks about how he, he sang a hymn with his disciples. Could you imagine hearing Jesus sing? I mean, did he have a, did he have a tenor voice, a baritone voice? Did he sing bass? I don't know, but that would have been amazing. And of course, to hear him preach would be fantastic. But here, through the inspiration and the preservation of the Holy Spirit, we are able to listen into his prayer. And his prayer, really, in John 17, the entire chapter, it's only 26 verses, and so it's not very long. It would only take you a couple of minutes to read it out loud. And, but you see, it's easily broken down. In the first several verses, he's going to pray uh, for himself. And that's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, sometimes you might feel shamed. You know, you ought not pray too much for yourself. Well, it's not unbiblical to pray for yourself. Jesus did that. But you will find that he didn't spend an enormous amount of time praying for himself. Then what he's going to do is he's going to pray for the 11 disciples that were right there. His 11 that he's really been working with. He's going to spend some time praying for them. And then in the latter half of the prayer, he's praying for all of the believers. And that's where we're kind of going to pick up tonight. We're going to kind of look at what he's praying about for all believers. Because... I feel that if he was praying for that then, 2,000 years ago, and he ever lives to make intercession for us today, wouldn't you think that his desire that's been preserved by the Holy Spirit in the pages of his word, wouldn't you admit with me that that is his desire for this church at this time today? 
And so I think that we can look at some of these things and think, this is what God desires for my life individually, and this is what God desires for our church collectively, and let's try and glean from it a little bit in the next few messages that we have together. So that being said, would you stand with me, please? And we're going to read verses 16 through 19. And you'll notice that some of these verses that we're going to read tonight are very familiar to many of you that have been around church for a long time. He says in verse 16, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here's that verse that you might know. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word as truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they, might, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for how it helps us. And I pray tonight that you would just use it again to accomplish an eternal work in the lives and the hearts of those that uh, claim you as their own. And I pray tonight that your prayer for us would be performed in us. Well, thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I appreciate you standing. I came across a little award that uh, is given out, you know, just some kind of frivolous, silly award. It's called the Christopher Columbus Award. And this is how they describe this particular award. If you are given the Christopher Columbus Award, it goes to, and it says, this award goes to those who, like Columbus, when they set out to do something, don't know where they are going or how to get there. When they arrive, they don't know where they are, and when they return, they don't know where they've been. So if you are a student of history and you kind of understand about Christopher Columbus, you might get a little chuckle out of that. But I think that that a lot of times describes most Christians. I think most Christians, or really all true believers, know they're going to heaven. So that put aside, Christians know that they're saved and they're going to heaven, but outside of that, when it comes to the Christian life, most people don't know where they are, they don't know where they're going, and they certainly don't know how to get there. Have you found that to be the case a lot of times when you're dealing with believers? I mean, they just basically know they're saved and that's it. But I want you to know tonight that the Lord doesn't want you to just know you're on your way to heaven. He wants you to know that. But there's a lot more to the Christian life than just that. The most popular name today for believers is the word Christian. I've used it several times tonight. If I were to say to you, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But did you know that that word Christian, that name is really only used three times in the entire New Testament? But it's the most popular name that we would use to describe a believer today. But did you know in the Bible, the word that's probably used the most in the New Testament to describe a believer or to describe a Christian would be a word that we kind of shy away from. And that's the word saint. In fact, we would even say something like this. Well, I'm no saint. Well, if you're a Christian, you are. Now, if you say, I'm no saint, I know what you mean. We're trying to say, well, I'm not bragging. I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming to be perfect. But according to the word of God, a believer is a saint. And the reason that that word is used so commonly in the Bible, it is closely related to the word sanctify. The word sanctify is a kind of a Bible theological type word, and, and it literally just simply means this. And by the way, I'm going to give you several definitions tonight. But it just simply, in its basic purest form, means set apart. Set apart. So a saint is somebody who has been set apart. 
We could expound or expand that definition a little bit and, and take that word sanctify and apply it to the Bible and understand this, that it's being set apart for, from sin and devoted to God's use. So, so let me give you a Bible example of what I'm talking about. God sanctified the Sabbath day. Remember what he did is, you see, he creates the world and on the seventh day, which is Saturday, he says, I'm going to take some rest. And it's certainly not because God was exhausted. God never tires, he never slumbers, and he never sleeps, but he, he was setting a precedent for his creation. He said, uh, six days you're going to labor, but I want you to set aside one day to rest. And he sanctified that day. He set apart that day for rest and faith and worship and reflection and he said, that's what I want you to do. I'm going to take a common, ordinary day, and I'm going to set it apart for some unique, divine usage. Now, you understand that. We're going to see that this happened in other places in the Bible. He was going to take the tabernacle, which was just a common, ordinary canvas tent. And he was going to take it, and he was going to set it aside for divine use. Later, it would be the temple. He was going to take this building, and it was a little more ornate and fancy, but he's going to say, I'm going to set it aside for some divine use. In fact, some churches even today, I don't particularly like to use this word and terminology with it, but would call this area right here the sanctuary. Now, I'm being a little technical. I like to call it an auditorium because it's just where we gather. Because really, in the New Testament times, God dwells within men. So we really kind of become that sanctuary. But, but you understand, if somebody calls it a sanctuary, really, it's an appropriate way to say it in the, in the fact that it's just a common, ordinary room that is set aside for divine usage. And so uh, that's what we understand with this word sanctify. But the word doesn't have to be related to just religious activities. In fact, in Isaiah 13, 3, the Bible says that God, and he uses this language, God sanctified the Babylonian army for his purposes. So he took enemy, enemies of God and he set them aside at, for a divine use. And, and that's the idea of sanctification. It's basically taking someone or something and setting it apart from a common usage and devoting it to a holy purpose. And I like that. Because I feel like I'm a common, ordinary individual. And I'm glad that God can take us and set us aside to use for his purposes. That's what he commonly does. Remember in the Bible, uh, if you were to go outside the temple, remember there was that laver, there's this big bowl. And, and really, I mean in his basic form, I'm not trying to sound sacrilegious or irreverent here, but it was just a bowl. That's all it was. A bowl. But it wasn't just any bowl, was it? It was a bowl, but it wasn't just any bowl because it was set aside for divine usage. So you understand, you couldn't just walk up to this bowl and wash your armpits in it. That's not what it was for. It was just a bowl. You could use any other bowl for that. But this bowl was set aside for divine purposes. Well, think about that. I'm just a guy. You're just a guy. You're just a lady. But, but we're not just any lady because we have been saved and therefore we are saints and we are set apart for divine usage. But unfortunately, the Christian of today has become more, like, more and more like the world. When in reality, a believer ought to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So I'd like to give you another definition tonight of sanctification. Sanctification, I like to define it this way, is the Christianization of the Christian. Now, if you're saved, you need to become a little more like Christ. 
So being sanctified is the Christianization of the Christian. Now, in my growing up days, and you too, if you've grown up in church, I've, I've heard, and I know many of you have not, but I've heard of preaching on sanctification, and, and uh, they have defined sanctification more this way. Well, uh, sanctification is when you dress a certain way. I've heard people just really go to town, and here's how you ought to dress, and don't get me wrong tonight, I mean, I think a Christian ought to be distinct in the way they present themselves, and, and, and I think that the Bible does give us principles about modesty, but, but it's not limited to that. I've heard a lot of people preach on dressing a certain way, or wearing your hair a certain way, or certain behavior patterns, but in reality, sanctification is a whole lot more than that. In reality, sanctification is a change, not just in our appearances, not just in our actions, but it is a change in our attitudes. It is a change in our ambitions. It is a change to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So here in this text, Jesus is praying for that. He says, it is my heart's desire and it's my prayer request that, that my people become like me. And so I want to give you tonight, I want to give you three thoughts about sanctification that we, we can learn from the Lord's prayer tonight. Three thoughts about sanctification. Number one, I want you to see this. The means for sanctification is the truth. The means for sanctification is the truth. Look at verse 17 again. Very simply put, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So again, sanctification is the Christianization of the Christian. Uh, sanctification, we could say it this way, is the process of becoming less worldly. So how does that process take place? What is this agent of change? Well, he, Jesus says it in plain language. It's the truth. The word truth is used three times in these four verses, and it's used more in this chapter, but it indicates that it is the vehicle for our sanctification. Now you think about that. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Think about how the devil operates. The Jesus said this about the devil. He said he's a liar, and he's the father of lies. So the greatest weapon that the Satan has is error. It's, it's lies. It's deceit. And that's how he paralyzes the people of God. Satan cannot snatch your soul, and he knows that. We are secure. In this prayer, Jesus talked about it before we got to this, how we are secure in Christ, and, and we have eternal security. That's not a Baptist thing. That's a Bible thing. And when you understand justification, you certainly understand that we're secure in Christ. So how does Satan render us uh, inoperable? How does he make us unproductive? He uses lies. Now let's think about that for a moment. What are the lies that are commonly told by, by the devil to, to God's people? We don't have time to unpack them all, but I'd like to give you a few of them, if I may. Uh, have you ever heard somebody say this? If you ask them, hey, if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? Have you, if you've ever been a soul winner and you've ever tried to talk to somebody about the gospel, have you had anybody ever tell you this? Well, I don't know that anybody can know that. Well, that's a common lie of the devil. You can't know that. Let me tell you, friend, you can know that. And there are people that are saved, they genuinely are saved, but they wrestle with doubt. Then there's a young lady in our church, I'll tell you, it seems like every invitation, she's raised her hand, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, man. She's been baptized several times and been led to Christ several times, and I believe it's because she is under the influence and the power of a lie of Satan that would uh, plague our mind and tell us, you can't possibly know that. What are other lies he tells us? I think the devil sometimes tells us there's no hope. There's no hope for your marriage. 
There's no hope for your addiction. There's no hope for your depression. There's just no hope for you. Let me tell you, friend, that's a lie of the devil. I I want you to say, well, uh, I think the disciples felt that after Jesus was dead and laying in the grave. Oh, there's no hope. It's over. But up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And and somebody might say, well, you know, as long as you're breathing, there is is hope. But I'm going to tell you, even with God, when you're not breathing, there's hope. Don't believe that of the devil. And let me tell you, I'm just being transparent with you tonight. I've been to those places before. I've allowed the devil to sit on my shoulder at times and say, God's done using you. It'll never get any better than this. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. I tell you tonight, he, he tells God's people that no one cares. You're all alone in this thing. But I'm going to tell you tonight, you look around this room, there are people all throughout this room that do care. They do care. you got to look out for number one. Maybe he tells our young people, hey, one time isn't going to hurt anything. You'll never get caught. These are all lies that the devil tells us. But I'm telling you tonight that while Satan works through lies, God works in us through the truth. He says, and ye shall know the truth, And the truth is what will set you free. So just like a a wire conducts electricity to a light bulb, God's truth carries God's power to our lives. I want to break that down just a little bit for you tonight. There are three components of his truth that provide a powerful weapon to the believer so that he can be completely sanctified. You think about the elements of truth in the Bible. I will tell you this, Jesus is truth. And we talked a little bit about this last night. When you think about Jesus' truth, I think that's wonderful to know that Jesus is truth. Therefore, he is a person that I can love. We talked about that last night. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And I'm thankful that Jesus is truth. And he is a person that I can love. And I'm thankful that I can say, I love you, Jesus. And I can serve him and I can walk with him and I can talk to him. And he is a sanctifying agent in my life because he is truth. But I also want to tell you tonight, I'm thankful for the Bible. Because the Bible is truth. And the Bible, while Jesus is a person that I can love, the Bible is a book that I can learn. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that I can learn more and more about the Bible. Are you thankful for that tonight? Listen, you will never understand. I just have a hard time understanding. You won't understand everything that you read, but you will understand some of what you read. And the more you read, the more you'll understand. And the more you understand, the more you'll become like Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, I love the Bible. I love to hear people preach it. I I remember there was this old preacher, he's gone to be with the Lord now. He was a friend of mine when I was pastoring in North Carolina. And he was from the hills of West Virginia. I mean, the hills of, of Virginia, not West Virginia. And he had a, a gravelly, old, southern-timey voice. And I had him preach for me one time, and I don't know if I necessarily entirely agree with him, but I love what was behind his statement. He got up in my pulpit, and he was preaching for us. He's being a blessing to our people, an old saint of God that God had used. He was in the fourth quarter of his life, and I remember him saying, I love preaching. He said, I love good preaching. And when I can't get some good preaching, I'll even take some bad preaching. (laughs) I don't know if I entirely agree with that, but I like what was behind it. You know what he was saying is, I love this book. 
I love uh, to read its pages. I love its stories and I love its principles and its precepts. Isn't that what the psalmist said? Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day and all the night. He said, it's like sweet honeycomb to my lips. I, I just want to, I mean, you'd say that to your grandkids, wouldn't you? Oh, I just want to eat you up. Man. Do you feel that way about the Bible? Because the Bible is truth. It's a book that I can learn. And I've been privileged by God since he's called me into the ministry to be able to study this book just about every day of my life. And I want to tell you, the more I study it, the more I learn, and the more I'm fascinated with it. And it is truth, and it's a sanctifying agent in my life. But do you know what else is truth? The Spirit is truth. The Bible says that. And, and, and the Spirit, he gives us a way that we can live. So, so we have a person that we can love, and we have a book that we can learn, and we, we have a spirit, we have a life that we can live, and all of these things, these agents of truth work in our life. So let me just kind of boil that down and conclude this thought. Any, if that's the case, then any experience, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience, any experience in our life that causes us to love Jesus more and learn the book better, and yield to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life, is a good thing. I know we all want good experiences. And I know we all want to shun bad experiences. But I want to say it again. Any experience, whether good or bad, that causes me to love Jesus more, and learn His Word deeper, and follow His Spirit more closely then that is a sanctifying agent in our life, and it's a good thing. That's how he sets us apart more and more for his glory. All right, number two. The mission for sanctification is to serve. Look at verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I've also sent them into the world. Now again, I think many people will take this idea of sanctification, and they want to use it as an opportunity to show how spiritual they are. You know, well, I, I don't dress immodestly, or I don't listen to rock and roll, or I, whatever it is you, you do or don't do. You know, it's the old, old poem you've heard. I don't drink, cuss, or chew, and I don't run with those that do, right? You know, I mean, whatever it is you think that makes you that holy, and I'm not minimizing those things. I, I'm just simply saying, sanctification is not an opportunity to, for us to display how spiritual we are. If that were the case, then you know who we would be? The Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were like that. Oh, look at, look at the length of our robes, and look how we wash our hands, and look how we wash our dishes, and look at how many days we fast, and how we pray, and the length of our prayers. And we tithe so much that we even tithe to the herbs and the uh, fruit of our gardens. And they, they were all about that. And their sanctification, to use that word very loosely, was just to tell everybody else how spiritual they are. And let me tell you, there are a lot, there's a lot of guilty ones as charged in Baptist churches that do the same exact thing. And they're totally mistaken as to what the mission and the purpose of sanctification is. According to verse 18, we are sanctified in order that we might be sent. That's what it says. Yes, we should be separated from sin. But we are separated from sin so that we can serve Jesus Christ. So the purpose and the goal of our change is to become more like Jesus Christ. But understand what happened to us at salvation. We were not saved just from the penalty of sin. Yes, it's wonderful to sing a song on Sunday. Praise the Lord, I'm not going to hell. Somebody say amen. But that is not the only reason God saved you. It wasn't just from the penalty of sin. He also wants to save us from the power of sin. 
And so he redeemed us from a sinful heart that keeps us from being useful servants for him and serving others. So understand, why did Jesus come to us? He came to us to reveal the Father. Well, why are we sent out? To reveal the Son. That's exactly the purpose. Jesus sought out sinners. We're to seek them out too. Listen to me, church, tonight, and I know your church has a heart for lost people. Uh, but I want to tell you, evangelism is not optional. It's not for people who have been blessed with the gift. Because if you study the spiritual gifts, there is no gift of evangelism. It's the responsibility of all Christians. Evangelism is not just something that happens. It's not just if an opportunity presents itself. Because I've been saved this year for 35 years. And I'm thankful for that. But can I tell you, I have never one time in my life, not, not one time in my life, have I had a Christian try to witness to me. One time I was reading my Bible on an airplane. I had a Mormon came up to me and he said, oh, you're reading the Bible there. I said, yes, I am. He said, that's an interesting book, isn't it? I said, that's a wonderful book. He said, wouldn't you like to know more about it? And he reached into his backpack. <laughs> pulled out another revelation. So you can put that back in your book bag, buddy. I, I got all I need right here. I have never, never one time, never one time have I had somebody come up to me and say, man, you know what? You really remind me of Jesus Christ. And I've been wondering, how does a person go to heaven? Now, that may have happened to you, but that has never one time happened to me. Never, not one time. But I've been able to lead, and I'm not bragging, I'm just saying I've been able to lead numbers of people to the Lord, but it's because I, I went after them. And that's exactly what the Lord does to us. You see, a gospel witness is at the very heart of authentic godliness. It's not so we can stand over here and speak about how holy we are. It's so that we can be clean enough to go out into a world that is defiled and be able to point people to the one that can make them whole and make them clean. We may not have to die, but all service requires some sacrifice of some sort. Now, I don't know about you, preacher, but here's what I've learned and the people that I've had to pastor is that a lot of Christians will not serve God if there's any inconvenience. I'm really thankful that God called me to preach. I really am. And not, this has nothing to do with preachers, but I'm just trying to illustrate something. I think God, you know, in, in His infinite wisdom, knew some of the gifts that I would have. I remember my second grade teacher in a parent-teacher conference, and I always dreaded those. Because I was kind of a knucklehead growing up. And uh, I remember my second grade teacher told my mom in a parent-teacher conference, she said, I believe that your son would speak to a corpse. I spent, I spent most of my second grade year in the corner in the desk by myself because I would talk to anyone and anything that was near me. And I think God said, well, man, here's a guy that likes to talk. I think I can use that. But you know, there were some things about pastoring that scared me. And one of them was going to hospitals. Listen, I, I, I don't like hospitals. I don't like the way they smell. I don't like what goes on in them. I try and stay away from them as much as possible. I never, ever in my life would want to be a nurse. Never. Any nurses in here? 
All right, God bless you. I'm glad you have that gift. I don't. I never would want to be a doctor. Listen, as a pastor, I get tired of hearing about people, people's bodily functions. I, I just, I don't need to know about your gastrointestinal issues. I don't like needles and I don't like blood. I remember God called me to preach and I was fired up about preaching and my my assistant pastor my church said, why don't you come with me? I'm going to make a hospital visit. There was a teenage boy in our community. He was about my age. I was a little older, but he was 16 years old and he was working on a, a dirt bike in his garage and something happened and the, the gasoline that he was using blew up in his face and burnt him terribly from the waist up and just burned him something terrible and so this assistant pastor was going to go in and comfort him and encourage him and try and share Christ with him and come along. And I remember I walked in the room and I took one look at the guy and I, I, I started to pass out. I felt terrible. And here's a teenager that's starting to be insecure about himself. But it was something literally I couldn't control. And I became an assistant pastor. And that's what happens in assistant pastors. The pastor says, go to the hospital and visit this lady. And you go. So this lady was coming out of this lady was coming out of surgery, and there was nothing, nothing. I mean, I wasn't there at the surgery. She was under the covers. She had a little IV. I couldn't see her arm where the tube was going in. But the nurse was there, and they were bringing her in, and 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 the nurse just started talking to her. She, all, I think, all she said was, "If that catheter gets uncomfortable, just let me know." And I said. Ugh. All I kept thinking about was tubes and needles and stuff going into people. And here I was trying to be, I saw the lady 30 seconds. I was like, well, you know, the nurse is dealing with you. Let's pray. God help this lady and me. Bye. You know, and I was just walking out. And literally I started getting woozy and, and, and I'm, walking down, I'm, I'm walking down the hall and I got my hand on the wall. And about from here to that wall, there was a lobby where some chairs and I, I remember seeing those chairs. I thought if I could just get to those chairs. If I could just get those chairs, I'll be all right. I'll sit down, I'll recoup. And I got over to the chair, and I remember getting finally to the chair, and I'm getting kind of blacked out. And I went to sit down in the chair, and I missed it, and I fell on the floor. And I got back up and sat in the seat, and I, I remember this nurse came out, and she was like, Sir, are you okay? I'm sure she thought I was drunk or something was wrong. And then I told her, I just don't feel good. She tried to admit me to the hospital. <laughs> So no, this place is causing it. I've got to get out of here. There's no way you're going to admit me. And then she brought me all these dice. I said, whatever you have to bring me, I'll sign it. I'm not going to sue you. And she brought me these papers, and I had to sign them and give me a little can of pineapple juice, and I'm sipping on it so I can feel better and get out of there. Man, I hate doing that stuff. So why are you telling me all of that? Do you know that sometimes God sanctifies us so that he can send us out to do his work? And sometimes it's a work that we would rather not do. Sometimes it's a work that we would not choose to do. But God has sanctified us, not so we could sit up in our holy hill and our ivory tower, but it's so we can go out into a world and minister to people that have needs that are sometimes dirty and sometimes unpleasant. But it's what God has sent us and called us to do. God doesn't always send, in fact, rarely does he send people to places of ease and comfort. Wouldn't it be nice if every preacher boy, when they graduated, a church that was running a thousand, called 22-year-olds, said, we want you to be our pastor. This church is amazing. There are a thousand people that come every week, and, and, and they all tithe. 
And they never complain. Never. And our starting salary is 150000 with full benefits. I'm sorry, that didn't happen to me, and it didn't happen to anybody that I know. It usually happens this way. We're going to pay you peanuts. And you're going to work way more than 40 hours a week, pal. And you're probably going to clean some toilets and mow some grass and hang some Christmas lights and visit hospitals. And people are going to complain and gripe. And they're not going to tithe and give and then they're going to complain about how the money's spent. And people are going to get divorces. And they're going to come with uh, addiction issues. And they're going to call you at all hours of the night. And you, you say, you're painting a bleak picture. No, I'm not at all. God calls us all, whether you're a preacher or not, to go to places where people need help. He said, the mission of sanctification is to serve. Let me give you the last thought tonight. The model for sanctification is the Lord. Let me show you, let me show you a, a verse that when I read it, it seems odd to me. Look at verse 19. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Does that seem strange to any of you? If sanctification is the process of becoming holy, why would Jesus say that? Well, let me just tell you by way of explaining that, that Jesus really is the poster child for sanctification. That word poster child originally referred to a child that was afflicted by some disease or whose image was used to raise money for a cause or organization, but we now use it in this way, it's expanded to say a person or thing that epitomizes or represents a specific quality for that cause. And Jesus is the perfect model for sanctification. It's not that he needs to become more holy. He is holy. He's the embodiment of holiness. But remember, sanctification is not just the process of becoming holy. Remember, we define it in a very basic term to say this. It is something that is set aside for divine use. So when Jesus, back to verse 19, says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Essentially what he's saying is this. For their sakes I set myself aside to die on the cross. He's a perfect example and a model somebody giving of themselves to be used by God. You think about his disciples. What a motley crew. Don't you love these guys? They're, they're arguing. Who's going to be the greatest? You know, it's, it's kind of like, we, we say this sometimes. They, they, would, they were saying to themselves, who's going to be on the Mount Rushmore of Jesus' followers? The other day I was preaching in our high school chapel, our, our church has a Christian school, and I was preaching in our high school chapel, and, and I, I usually ask some icebreaker type questions just to have some fun with the kids, and I, I asked this question, I said, if you could add anybody to Mount Rushmore, who would you add? And I mean, before the question was even out of my mouth, a kid who's a, a 10th grader in our school shouted out, me! <laughs> now, now here's a kid 
who hasn't even graduated high school. He doesn't even have a job. I'm sure he hasn't cleaned out from under his bed in two years. And he wants to be added to the Mount Rushmore of our nation. That's how these guys were. Man, I'll tell you what, I'm, a, I'm already, I mean, who do you think's the greatest? I mean, you know it can't be, I mean, Simon over there. Nobody even talks about him. It's got to be me. And the whole time, Jesus is leading the way. And you don't think he's not hearing this stuff? And the one who is the greatest. In fact, don't we say that about him? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We sang about that so appropriately tonight, didn't we? Talking about worshiping Him and adoring Him, magnifying Him. Remember, there's a difference between praise and worship. Praise is thanking God for what He's done. Worship is adoring Him for who He is. You want to talk about the greatest of all the greats. Nobody even compares to Him. And these jokers are talking about who the greatest is. And while they're talking about how great they are, Jesus is girding himself with a towel and he's wiping their feet. Do you not see what I'm trying to say to you? He's the model of sanctification. You notice in his model of sanctification, once you notice this about Jesus, he was not a, a, a recluse. Study his life. He attended weddings. He attended funerals. He worshipped with others at the synagogue and the temple. In fact, his enemies called him gluttonous and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. And of course, they were speaking in hyperbole. They were exaggerating. But the idea that they were, they were making was that he was not isolated from people. But he was also the perfect example and model for us in this. Please don't miss this. That he made contact without making contamination. See, I think that that's what's happened to Christianity in so many ways, is we've swung the pendulum to either side. We've, we've said that we've got to be so sanctified and so holy and so righteous that we have no association whatsoever with, thing, with anything in the world. We stay away from it. We never come in contact with it. But then there's a segment of the Western church today that swung over this way. And, and in an attempt to reach the world, they become exactly like the world. They dress like the world. They talk like the world. They drink what the world drinks. They watch what the world watches. And they're totally immersed in the world. And that's not the idea the Lord has for us either. He was the perfect model. He was balanced right in the middle. He had contact with the world in which he lived. In fact, in this prayer, he said, I don't pray that I take my believers out of the world. I leave them in the world so they can reach the world. But I don't want them to be contaminated by the world. Personal sanctification is not optional. It's critical. How many would agree with me tonight? I'm almost done. I'm not meaning to wear you out. I tell you tonight, how many would agree with this statement? Our world is becoming more and more corrupt all the time. Well, then I would tell you, it's not time for us to run to the hills. We don't need some commune in the, in the middle of nowhere growing our own organic tomatoes and having organic chickens, you know, because we're Baptists, we've got to have some fried chicken, but we organic up in our own hills and get away from everybody. No, it's not time to run to the hills. It's time to come into contact with our world. But we, and if we're going to make a difference, we've got to be different. Growing up in the 80s, 
born in the 70s, spent most of my childhood in the 80s. You remember the, the AIDS epidemic scare. You were terrified of it. They didn't know where does this come from and how bad is it and how do you catch it and all of that was a, was a big problem and now we know a lot more about it but it's still a scary thing. Well, we still have to help people and so you watch doctors just recently there's a, somebody connected to our church that passed away of AIDS. And I went to visit them and try and minister to them in their dying hour. Told you, serving people sometimes messy. You say, were you a little nervous? Well, first of all, I don't like being in hospitals in the first point. Did I tell you that? <laughs> Second of all, yeah, you know what this person's dying of. When I got to their room, there were specific instructions on the door. Man, I put that sanitizer on my hand and really worked it in good. Took some latex gloves and put them on my hands and put a robe over my, over my clothes and put a mask on my face. That's what they told me to do. You go in and you make contact with a person, but you make sure that you stay away from the contamination. Jesus was a perfect model of that. The Bible says this, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. You know, we do that about watching our weight, don't we? We could maybe modify that verse and say this, make no provision for fattening foods, lest you put the weight thereof on. Yeah, your, your church has been feeding me good. I'm going to have to have my wife take my pants out a little bit when I get home. I've not really been making provision for fattening foods this week. But I'm going to tell you, we need to be as concerned about living flesh-free as we are about living fat-free. Jesus was a model of that. So I'm done preaching. Thank you for letting me preach a little bit tonight. Can I ask you some questions? Will, will, you, will you stay with me for just a few more moments on these questions? Don't zip up your Bible case. Think about this. I'm going to ask you two series of questions. First series, I just want to ask you a little bit about sanctification. and Be honest about it. The second series is just going to match up with the points of my sermon. Here's the first set of questions. I want you to take a survey of your life and ask yourself, how am I progressing in this area of sanctification? So what do you mean? Here's, here's the first test. Am I living a life distinctively Christian in my appearance and my conduct? Have you ever uh, looked at somebody before and thought, is that a guy... Or is that a girl? Oh, it's definitely a guy. Uh, no. No, I think it's a girl. Nah, it's a guy. Anybody ever done that? Okay. You ever, you ever been in a place before and heard a song and thought, I think this is a Christian song. No. No. Yeah, it's a Christian. No. Listen. I don't want anybody to look at my life and say, is that a Christian? I think so. Uh, nah, yeah, nah. Is your life distinctively Christian? 
That's what sanctification does for you. Can you say in your appearance and your conduct, it is distinct, I didn't say perfect, distinctively Christian. Question number two, am I gradually conforming to worldly philosophies and practices? Here's what bothers me about my church. People I minister to, people, people around the country that I might minister to. So a lot of times we want to point at Christian or at practices and say that's worldly. That music's worldly, that entertainment's worldly, that place is worldly. But we totally espouse and embrace worldly thinking, which I think is more dangerous. So am I becoming more and more worldly in the way I think and therefore in the way I act? Third question. Is there something wholesome and distinctive that sets me apart? Now let me ask you a series of questions to go with what I was saying tonight in my sermon. How am I connected to the Word? Because remember, the agent, the means of sanctification is the truth. So how connected am I to this book? Our brother prayed before the services. Some of us need to be revived in, in how much we're reading the Bible. You've been in the book consistently? Because this is the agent. Have you been? In, I mean, I, I know I'm preaching at the choir. You're here tonight on a, on a, on a bad weather day. You know, you're, it's great. But, but how connected are you to this book? Because how connected you are to this book is a measurement of your sanctification. Number two, am I a witness to the lost? Because our sanctification ought to send us out. But here's another follow-up question. How much of a servant am I to the saints? That's sanctification. Number three, how have I modeled my life after Jesus? Because he's the model of sanctification. His prayer for us was that we would be sanctified people. That as Christians, we would become Christian. I hope that we're doing that, that we're growing in that area. I pray that you will grow. Please pray that I will grow. That's, that's the desire of my heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for what it does.